Welcome to the Music Matters Podcast. So, welcome to the show, Music Matters. Uh, welcome back, everyone. Today on the show, we've got Tim Mantle. Mantle, thank you very much for coming on the show, buddy. We really appreciate it, Tim. Uh, Brad, hey, how's it how's going, buddy? Going, buddy? How's it going? I'm going to kick start off with, uh, so I've done, obviously, like I said before, I've done some research on you, uh, and you're a bespoke sound designer, am I correct when I say that? Yeah, mostly mostly just for synthesizers, so that's basically what I work on, and yeah, I'm surrounded by them all the time, and that's my sort of thing, I just tweet with the synthesizers, yeah. Yeah, how did you fall into that? Where did it all start? Um, well, I didn't know what a synthesizer was until about 2004, um, which makes me sound young, but I'm not. I'm, well, I'm 38 now, I think. It's hard, it's hard to keep up. Um, but um, I had some friends that uh, went to record an album in France, and I kind of felt I was missing out a little bit, stuck at home. And uh, that's when I started to look at... Um, software stuff and writing music again with software like I have a, I had a background of composition just on pianos and stuff when I was younger and learning that way mm-hmm. and then I kind of just started to explore soft software and um, discovered soft synths and uh, it clicked with me because I was listening a lot to you know dance music in the 90s and really loved the sounds but the idiot that I am I never really questioned where those sounds came from and so when I found these software synthesizers, um, you know, it just, uh, it seemed to me that there must be the real hardware version of these software things, um, considering they were pumping out the same sounds that I'd heard for years and years and years. So I did a bit of research and then I sort of just got um, heavily into synthesizers from that point. I started really geeking out with it. And... Um, you know, a few years after that, I bought a Profit 08 by Dave Smith Instruments. And um, I initially, I wasn't all that impressed with it because I had a JD800 Roland and I thought it could, it could do similar things. But the more time I spent with the Profit 08, the more impressed I was with it. And over a course of a couple of months, I created a bunch of sounds myself using that synth, and then I just did a YouTube video, and and people were, it it was quite a popular YouTube video, and people were quite keen to have a copy of those sounds, and that's kind of how I fell into it. So you are inspired by the 90s, and I thought it was your sort of best era back then, best sound, best DJ. Um, Well... It's it's complicated because I I'm, you know I love all sorts of music and um, when I talk about the synth sounds especially I think even um, when I started doing this in 2004 or started mucking about the synthesizer in 2004 it was the sounds of the band Orbital that were really um, connecting with me with the software stuff so I hear those sounds in the software and go right I can associate that sound to my favorite band at the time they were orbital um so i've got lots of i take lots of inspiration from all sorts of different bands and genres but um if we're talking about the the 90s the stuff that came out of the 90s you know prodigy chemical brothers orbital those were the, the big three for me and daft punk as well yeah. Yeah, I got it's massive on the 90s yeah i uh I saw Orbital live at Exeter yeah. University in, I don't yeah. know, it was 90-something. It was one of the most amazing sounds I've ever heard in my life. The, yeah. sound, the sound system they had in the actually, uh, the universities, it was just in the gymnasium. They used the, the gym hall, and they had the array set up in a circle almost above hanging and then orbital were on a tower like they do right they had there's a scaffold yeah. tower right in the center yeah <laughs> and the sounds they were throwing around that room blew my mind i just i stood right <laughs> underneath the tower almost as centered as i could get in the room and you could just hear their noises going around that array yeah. it was amazing yes yeah, so yeah. i've got i've got quite a bit of their stuff on vinyl Oh, well, we should compare notes on that. I've got <laughs> a ton of Orbital on vinyl. I've got, you know, Dave with my Discogs. I've got some really obscure stuff. Nice. Um, there, there's a couple of, well, we'll talk maybe later, but there's a couple of albums that I don't have, and that's pretty much it. 
Yeah. Um, but I, I would say that um, if we're going to talk about gigs briefly, then the gig that really blew my mind was when Prodigy did Fasa the Land Tour, and they came to Brighton where I was living at the time, and that was that blew me away. I mean, I was I I, I must have been too young to go but i went anyway and, um, <laughs> i think the first track to smack my bits up and like the, the place just went mad it was insane that's the first moss pit i've ever been in and like it was terrifying but incredible at the same time and they did one of their tracks off to a generation book throttle and yeah. the, bass, the bass in that was insane you listen to that track now turn up the bass on your hi-fi you wouldn't even get close you i mean that, that track is just i that'll never leave me again I, I was pretty blessed with the prodigy too so I, i'm i'm maybe a little bit older than yourself mate by about nine years <laughs> and, and uh so i used to go to the eclipse in coventry and again i've talked about this on other podcasts the eclipse in coventry i don't know if you really have ever heard of it tim but it was, <laughs> it was it was a legendary club it was the first rave club in england that stayed open all night long and nice. it, it was an old bingo hall. Oh, you know what? I saw some photographs of some raves uh, the other day. I'll, I will find you the name of the photographer at some point, mm. but there's some old photographs from that, from Coventry, uh, all night rave club. I yes, that would be the eclipse. And, and you, used yeah. to, you used to have to go to the record store across the road, it was called Banging Tunes. So you'd have to go over right. to Banging Tunes to get your ticket, <laughs> and then you could get in there. And we saw Prodigy there when they first got signed. Literally, they yeah. just got no. signed, and it was doing. They were doing their first PAs. So I, I very much enjoyed that, uh, their whole career, pretty much. And Jilted uh, Generation, the artwork on that album, which I have yeah. as well, obviously, yeah, yeah, <laughs> was was pretty much based on one of the raves at Pitt. The, one of the old hippie raves that I went right. to, uh, they played at, yeah. But yes, like we're we're obviously part of that same little group. And... Yeah, I'm 30 years old, so I caught the last. Of <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you caught some of it. That's enough to kind of right. get it. Yes, as long yeah. as you got a little taste of it, it's yeah. all good, yeah. right? So, uh, Sam 37, P37 is the name of your company and your brand and your sound design. How did you come about starting this, and uh, when did it uh, sort of start developing? Well, as I say, um, it was really with that YouTube video I did for the Profit 08, and um, I felt like there was enough interest in what I'd done with that instrument that I could, you know, expand on that. So instead of, you know, I, I might have created 50 sounds at that time, which I then demoed on this video i was only demoing the profit 08 as a synthesizer I wasn't demoing my sounds but i got a good feedback from it so then i um i spent a few weeks expanding on those sounds and i i um wrote another 200 as <laughs> and um, then i i just put them out there on, on the market um kind of came up with a price which i thought was attractive for people to buy and, and and it did really 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 well and um after that um you you get if your sounds are good then you get good feedback and that trickles down and i think um maybe a year or so after i got in touch with dave smith instruments just to let them know that i was out there and available and um forwarded some of the feedback that i'd had because it's good you know if, if people like your sounds enough it will convince them to buy the synthesizer not just your sounds but they see a youtube video of that synthesizer and they like what they hear then they're going to go out and buy the synthesizer so i, I kind of used that to talk to those smith instruments and i didn't hear anything back for a while and then um when they were working on their profit 12 they gave me they dropped me an email and asked me if I wanted to work on that. So that's kind of how it fell in. It was it was a case of creating some really good sounds right out the bat that were good enough for you know the, the manufacturer to think, well, you know, we could we could do with some of that on our next synth. Amazing. Dave Smith's Dave Smith's pretty big name. Yeah, Dave Smith is some <laughs> yeah, good shit. Like, 
I was really I was really chuffed to bits to be working with them when that when that happened. Yeah, man, that's cool. Like you say you work with the Prophet Twelve, and from what I've read, you've done the Pro Two and the Tempest. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I did the Temp- I didn't work with them on the Tempest, but the Tempest was um, an instrument that I did a self-release on. So I've done lots of self-releases. Um, the Tempest being one of them, which was a really popular release. But um, yeah, in terms of working directly with those Smith instruments, it was the Prophet Twelve and the Pro Two that we we worked together on. So did you? Um, you obviously bought them instruments before, right? And then. Work with no. them? No. Nope. Um, with the when generally when working with a manufacturer, you're it's part of the development process. So for Dave Smith Instruments, uh, I was handed a couple of prototypes. I didn't keep those. They were sort of they came at the Profit Twelve came to the UK, and I was maybe one of three people that were were going to use it. So it sort of. I got it, I worked with it for a little bit, and then I posted it onto the next guy. And the same deal with the Pro 2. So I was working on prototypes. Interesting. Nice, man. So what would be your favorite sort of Dave Smith instrument, if you could pick one out of just Dave Smith that you've worked with, or do you like to get your hands on sort of thing? I'd like a Tempest again. I I think the Tempest is the most underrated synthesizer out there and people think about the Tempest as a drum machine and people need to think about the Tempest as a synthesizer first with drum machine capabilities. It has a six voice, It's it's got six voices, two analog oscillators and two digital oscillators which you can combine, you know, all of those together into mm-hmm. a six Analog synthesizer. I, I, I love it. It's yeah, crazy. you can really manipulate that, kind of. Yeah, people. The, the preset pack I did for that sells well because people don't necessarily understand how the Tempest works. It's a little bit com- convoluted in some ways, um, but once you get the hang of it, it's just it's great. I love it. What's the price mark on the Tempest? Um, the UK, well, yeah. uh, for a used one, um, you know, when I because to answer your question earlier, yes, I do buy synthesizers to work on. If I'm doing a self-release, I obviously I have to buy the synthesizer yeah. to work on the presets. And then once the presets are done and I know that they're working on other people's gear, I move on and I sell that synthesizer to on the next one. Uh, the Tempest, I wish I hadn't sold, but you know, I had it. The Tempest I bought for £850.00. And at the moment, uh, I saw one today, I think, at £1,500. Yeah. And they just... But, but it's not... That's not a regular price. They, I don't think anybody really knows how much a Tempest is worth. They sort of, like... If I was to say what... I don't think you would... should. I don't think you should pay more than £1,000 for a Tempest. Yeah. What was yeah. the um, the instrument you was... I see you highlight on Instagram that someone was charging like six grand for some... Yeah. What was yeah. that? Um, I can't remember, was I've got a feeling... Oh, right. So there's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so there was a couple of things on Reverb, and it, it does annoy me, but, you know, people try and get away with what they, <laughs> what they could get away with. So... Um, Korg released a reissue of the ARP 2600, and their price was £3,000, but it was a limited edition. I can't remember how many they had available. Um, But, you know, people have clearly just bought that synthesizer to then sell on the used market and mark it up like insane prices. But that's that's just an example of trying to resell something that's limited edition. Um, but Reverb, you know, they, they I don't know what people are on when they list stuff on Reverb. So there was another one where it was uh, yeah, Roland JX8P, which is kind of like this Super JX behind me, but half of half of one of these. And they listed this. This was the best one. They listed a Roland JX8P for close to three thousand pounds. And it's worth, I'd say, maybe £700, but they said it was new. They said it was new old stock. But when you, uh, And then the disclaimer at the bottom was, well, you know, it's been hanging around for a while, so it's got all these scratches and stuff on it. And you look at the photos, and it's just, it's pretty beat up for something that's being claimed as new old stock. But anyway, it's 
It's like a synthesizer catfish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Exactly. A lot of that going on at the moment. Oh, for sure, yeah. When um, So when you st- did get approached by Dave Smith or you guys started working together, how long does a process like that take, right? If When, when you actually start to develop a sound with them for one of their bits of hardware, like how long can that take? Uh, I... I will say that I know how much time I would like to take on it. And some uh, manufacturers give you that time and others don't. Um, so I, I, I'm going to tell you how much time I would like to take. And that is um, per sound would take maybe... Anywhere between 10 minutes and half an hour, I'll come up with a, a the, the first render of a sound. And what I'll do is I'll just keep, I'll, I'll keep creating sounds um, probably more than the person wants. So let's say a manufacturer says, can you do us 50 sounds? I'll end up doing 120 and then I'll come back and I'll review them and then I'll find the ones that I like and then I'll re-render them. And so what I would say is that maybe each sound, if I'm given given the time that I want to spend on it, might take an hour to make it sound correct to my ears, to add all the modulation that the manufacturer has requested, to name the sound, to maybe add a sequence if the manufacturer's requested that. You know, there's lots of synthesizers have lots of different capabilities that the manufacturers want to show off and they say, okay, well, um, each sound you have to do this, that, and the other. So I would like at least an hour per sound. But, you know, it depends how much time I'm given with the synth as to how um, confident I am that they will like the sounds or rather like the quality of the sounds honestly depends on how much time they give me to do yeah. it. Yeah. Is this like, if you don't mind me asking, is this like your, uh, your full-time job? Absolutely not. And, um, so I do work part-time elsewhere to pay a mortgage and all the other things that come with adult life. Um, <laughs> you know, um, but, uh, I've been trying to make this my side, you know, it's been my side hustle for 10 years and it's gone really well up until recently where um, there's just too many people doing, uh, releasing preset packs. When I started, there was me and maybe two others that were doing this sort of work, like doing preset packs. Um, as self-releases, um, and there was a couple of people when you know we we spoke with each other. It was quite a, a small group, and we were all nice to each other. And within the last, I'd say, like within the last couple of years, it's been hard for the customer to see the wood from the trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much yeah. stuff coming out at the moment, and it's making my life. Difficult, <laughs> and it's making me wonder whether I should continue to do preset design. So I worked on a Dave Smith OB, uh, sorry, the sequent. No, it is a Dave Smith OB6 recently, and I spent I spent months on that project being a self-release, and I know that the time I invested in it now is not going to pay me back. Mm-hmm. By the way, the market is at the moment. So, um. It's not my main job, and I'm wondering whether there's other things I should be pursuing beyond design at the moment. I'd like I'd like it to involve synthesizers as much as possible because that's really what I'm in, into it for. Yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and you you did partner with Korg as well, right, to develop uh, yeah. some of their sounds for the Minilog. So the Minilog was um, that's. That's a slightly different one. So they wanted me and another guy in the UK to do a, a sort of a complementary pack of presets for the Minilog. So the Minilog had been released, and then they wanted to kind of create 
additional buzz and interest in the mini log like a couple of months after release, I suppose. Um, I worked on that with another guy called JD73, I think I was working with Dan on that one, um, who's another preset designer, he's doing, but he also um, services Fender Rose pianos, that's that's his, <laughs> really? that's his call to my thing, I think, yeah, he's, he's a good guy, I met him um, at Synthfest last year. Anyway, um, so yeah, I worked on the mini log with Korg and then they were, pleased enough with that that I then worked on the iMonopoly, so like the software version yeah. of the Monopoly, and that went well, and then we went on and worked together on the uh, Prologue. I see, because I, I use Reason, and I've got the Mono and the Poly Korg plugin. Is that is that what you were involved in? Yeah. Wow. Okay, so I'm speaking to the man behind that. Yeah, so if, I mean... I'm not the only person that was writing sounds for it, of course, but um, sure, yeah. Yeah, it's the iMonopoly that you're, which is a VST from Korg, and yeah, yeah. Very nice, got, man. Yeah, and you, you also teamed up with Novation too, right, for the base station? Yeah, most, most recently. So the Summit, um, so I think, again, they wanted me to, so I took, no, it was the Peak first, so they sent me a peek because they wanted to release some additional sounds for Novation Peak. And again, they were pleased enough with that to get me on board with their flagship synthesizer, the Summit, which I cannot speak highly of. Um, they sent me one of those. Um, I've kept it. I love it. Um, but that was, that was a that was a really good example where I was given a ton of time to do the work right. And mm -hmm, by, yeah. the time I, by the time I sent back the sounds, I was really happy with them in both in both the Peak project and the Summit project. Nice. nice man. I actually have one of the base stations. I've got the base station too. That's a sick. That's a sick. So what I'll do as a, <laughs> I'll send you over my base station to preset. I really, you know, I really rate that synthesizer. It's a great um, little toy. It's cool, man. And for the money, bang for buck for what you get. Like, I, I think, I don't know what it is in the UK, but I think I paid $700 Canadian for it. So yeah. that's probably like, I don't know, three, four hundred pounds maybe. Yeah, I don't know, yeah, in the UK. On the used market, you could probably pick one up for 250 And there's yeah, a reason right. that Orbital make it on tour with them. I think they still have it in their rig at the moment. Yeah, I really it's a, yeah, it sounds great. And the work I did for the base station two was some of the best work I felt I've done. But the problem is that when you release presets for a monosynth, people just don't really buy it because it's a base monophonic synthesizer. You know, it does like a couple of different things. You know, yes. people it's pretty basic, right? the bass or the user for leads. So if I come out with 128 variations, um, I just don't think people were really interested in it. So I stopped I stopped writing for mono synths uh, after the bass station too. It's a great piece of kit. I love it. Yeah, yeah, I love the noises. It's fun. Yeah. I don't really know how to use it properly, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool sound. I was going to um, uh, What's, what um, brand would you say has been the most enjoyable to work for uh, making these presets and doing other sorts of sound design? Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say um, one's better than the other. They all have their they have a distinctive sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. The distinctive sort of way of working. Some are more relaxed and that's great. And some are, a, some have been a bit uptight <laughs> and, Precious. Um, what I would say is that um, the ones that the difficulty comes when a synthesizer isn't isn't ready. So I have received a synthesizer which I won't name that like the firmware just wasn't ready to be writing presets for. And then when I wrote a bunch of them, I got new firmware, installed the firmware, and all those presets suddenly were out of whack, and I had to do the work again. Um, so it's it's really 
I, I think it's the smaller teams are best to work with because you get that sort of direct uh, communication that's got a lot of confidence and a little one-to-one. -one. And you know on the other side of it with some of the bigger companies that they're getting a little bit lost in higher management and the pressures that come with trying to release a new synthesizer, you can kind of that sort of filter through on emails. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose we won't mention obviously uh, brands, but I, I assume that some of the smaller companies, like you say, have uh, have got more time to speak to you on the personal level to uh, get yeah. the best sound for that product, right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, all brands are getting the right people on board to write um, presets, but I mean, I could—I don't know whether I should go down that rab rabbit hole. No, or that's not. cool. Yeah. yeah, no, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So personally, then, if you are going to look at your like collection and what you've used over the years, synth-wise, is there any that really stands yeah. out for you? That's one of your favourite synths, or that you would never give up, like your Desert Island synthesizer. <laughs> well, I was hoping you'd ask this question. <laughs> um, uh, I've got a desert, my Desert Island synthesizer, even though I don't own it, is uh, the Rev 2, which is a, it's a newer model of the Prophet 08. Um, now, it's not to everybody's taste. I, I think a lot of people don't get along with the filter on that instrument, but when you weigh the pros and cons of all synthesizers that have ever been made, um, you know, the, uh, the Rev 2 has a lot going for it. It's got so much modulation, it's got effects on board, it does have a good sound to it. Might not be the best at everyone's pace, as I say, but it, it's good enough. And if I was to be on a desert island with a synthesizer, I think I'd want the Rev 2, because it just, it just covers so much. Yeah. Nice. But I haven't also, I haven't played all synthesizers. <laughs> so there's a couple that are still on my list to play. Yeah. Um, not many, not many, but a couple that I, I want to play. Before. Have a little try on. What ones would they be? The Jupiter Rate, I haven't managed to get a hold of yet. And um, Matrix 12, I haven't managed to get a hold of. And also an Oberheim 4 voice. And lastly, I've never actually tried a Profit 5. And I don't know how this how that's escaped me through the last... I've only been going for about 10 years now, but I still... I, I should have seen a Profit 5 at some point by now. <laughs> so we, we spoke about this before with the synths, and uh, the 80s was, was great for obviously that sort of time, right? And I like the Pro 1 that Steve Clark uses, like... That guy he went in uh, Yazoo when he used the Pro One in there. That was and Behringer made a Pro One now, like the, obviously the copy. But I don't, I don't remember if it sounds the same. But they that, that original Pro One sounds awesome. Um, again, the Pro One I've seen in the flesh, but I've never actually used it. And um, you're talking about Vince Clark there from Vince Clark. Um, sorry, yes, yeah, not Steve Clark. Vince Clark. Sorry, yeah. And Depeche Mode and yeah. um, Yazoo, and um, now I can talk about Erasure and how great Erasure are. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> At least the sounds. I think that it's a bit too poppy for some people, but no, okay. it's still it's that whole sound, right? The, the how it's programmed and sequenced, and then the vocals on top of that, and how that is married together. It's just like Erasure. It's, yeah, it's a little bit too much for some people, but I think uh, the way it was put together is brilliant. And um, the Pro One, again, I haven't managed to get hold of that one, um, to, but I hear good things about it, and, yeah, it would be nice to get hold of that. The 80s still, um, unfortunately, are the best. Yes. Yeah, I, I, my, my, my parents say that the 80s were the best. I was blessed. I was born in 73, <laughs> so I really was an 80s kid. Like, I grew up in the yeah. 80s, and it was fantastic. At the time, <laughs> we, at the time we didn't realise how fantastic it was, but yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a pretty good decade for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are some um, really powerful synths that came out of the 70s, of course. Oh, but, for sure. But uh, I think the 80s was really the heyday. 
Yeah, and it was when they were utilised to their yeah. full potential. You know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think in the seventies they were there and people were playing with them, but in the eighties mm -hmm. people embraced synthesizers and really like utilised you know, them. It was electronic music that really took off um, yes. towards the late seventies right. and into the eighties, and obviously just into up until now. So, yeah. um, really, really gained ground in the eighties. It seems we're talking about the instruments and the hardware side. For for your preset packs that you've put out for your various instruments, which one do you think you've had the most recognition or like has been your most popular presets and which instrument was that for? The most I think the most popular was for the Tempest. The one that I probably received the most recognition for was probably the Prophet O eight. Um because I, I just got a lot of um Good feedback on the Dave Smith forums for that one, but yeah. um, I think I think with the Tempest, um, that was definitely the most popular. Definitely, still still going today. What's the um, process from like from start to finish on when you start doing it? How you record it? How you do the design part to the final product? How does that work? It's uh, you know when I first started out, it just would boss out sounds and never go back to them. Um, so, for example, the Prophet 08, I would have just bossed out 200 sounds um, and then made them available to purchase and didn't really think much more of it from that point onwards. But the more that I've worked with manufacturers, the more I've kind of become a bit of a perfectionist. So for the last project, when I worked with, on the OB6 as a self-release, I spent way too much time, way much, much more time than I should have done. But the process basically starts out as um, the first thing I'll do is clear all the sounds on the synthesizer so they just have that basic waveform, the sawtooth waveform, and I'll save that 200 times. So now I've got absolutely no direction from any other sounds that were on that synthesizer before. So I've got 200 uh, blank canvases to start off with and then I'll just um, it depends on the synthesizer where on the synth I'll start um, but sometimes I'll have I'll think to myself well I haven't done any bass sounds so maybe I'll do a bass sound I might think yeah I haven't done any mono monophonic lead sounds so maybe I'll do something like that but generally um, I'll just start tweaking the oscillators and the waveform and it will guide me in a certain direction until I have an idea of where it then needs to go. So I'm kind of like, let, just tweak until the synth sort of gives me an idea, and then I'll go on and finish that idea. And then, as I say, I'll probably do that 200 times, and, and then I'll come back, listen to them, and maybe delete some, and then rework others as I go along. And then... Um, name them if i have to i'd rather not because it's 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 a pain to come up with names because names are subjective to you to me the creator right i might name a preset something completely different to how it sounds but um it means something to me whereas other people go are you sure like all these names are linked up to the right presets properly has there been a jump because it doesn't seem to make sense no it's just it just mean it just makes sense to me um and then um, I will just send the word out that I've got something coming out to wherever that needs to be, um, Instagram most recently, and uh, forums and stuff, and then I sort of brand it a little bit. But as I say, it's, it's yeah, I spend way too much time on it these days. Um, I'm not really getting back what I put into the last few releases. But you really enjoy that, obviously. You're right. I do, and you know, I've been. I'm in an R, and as to whether I should keep going, but to be honest, it's something that I do enjoy the process of creating presets for synthesizers. That's just, you know, it's the creativity thing that I can't really drop. It's just, you know, is it is it worth my time putting? You know, all my hours into something like that. Um, maybe I should be looking at it at a different angle as to you know, maybe not 
making money out of it and just enjoying it and seeing what comes out of it at the end of the day. But, you know, I am still trying to make a living. I think it's a pretty much uh, a struggle that artists have in general, right? Doing yeah. something that you love to do, but then doing it to make money, right? It yeah. sort of yeah, changes, exactly. changes things a little bit, right? Definitely. It comes work. Yeah. I think a lot of musicians are pretty... Uh, yeah, I think art in general, yeah, right? You know, any kind of creativity, I think yeah. people have that same battle. Um, so, Tim, did you have any, like, training, schooling for this sound mm. thing, or are you pretty much self-taught guy? Uh, it, all the synth stuff is completely self-taught. So um, I, and, yeah, I studied music at school, and my parents put me into, you know, I can't remember. They gave me an ultimatum once. I can't remember. It was either after school, something or other, or learn to play the piano. Um, <laughs> so I said, all right, I'll learn to play the piano. And, and I didn't get very far. I was grade two, but I used to compose on the piano all the time. I, my parents always said I had a good ear. So I could hear a piece of music and I could replicate it on the piano pretty quickly. But the problem with um, learning to play piano is they teach you with classical music. And um, so I'm not interested in that, you know, I'd rather learn to play jazz. Um, and that's what I really wanted to do. You know, teach me how to play piano with something I'm interested in, like jazz music. Um, and that, that would have been cool. But um so, sorry, I've completely forgotten the question. Cause the question was school, schooling and training. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I had a background in um, composition, basically, and playing keyboards. And um, how I learned was I, in 2005, I bought a Roland SH-101, and that taught me a lot more than I knew before I bought a 101. And um, I would say the 101 is probably the best monophonic synthesizer of all time. And people will, would murder me for saying that because, you know, there's, there's the mini Moog. But um, the 101 to me is just is, is a fantastic design. The way it's laid out, it's just ergonomically brilliant. Um, and, of course, it sounds great. But it's the way it was designed that helped me to understand envelopes and LFOs and filters and all these different things. It taught me how to really create. Um, it, ta it taught me the fundamentals of synthesizers. I'd been mucking about, about with um, soft synths for ages, but I wasn't getting particularly far. But when I, you know, when I picked up the 101, that's how I learned. And then from that point onwards, that could just be transferred to every other synthesizer that I bought. <laughs> when was the uh, the beginning release for the 101? Because they've uh, Roland bought out their boutique version, right? Of that yeah. synth. So how? Yeah, sorry. sorry, sorry, go on. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it, that, I think the I think the 101 uh, came out in '82, um, and then the boutique version came out a couple of years ago, which I tried and I didn't. I like the fact that it's got it's got polyphony on the boutique version, but um, it's not the same experience as having everything in full size right there. And the, the original 101 is just so light as well. I'm not saying the boutique one isn't, but I've just got I've got a lot of positive things to say about the 101 and how it was designed. Do you still have your original? No, I had to. I went through a bad patch a few years ago, and I had to sell my 101. Oh. Um, I bought, I bought, but you know, I bought it for 250 quid in 2005, and I sold it for six seventy. There you go. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. I can't complain. And now, um, now I've got a System 100 101, which is a slightly earlier. Uh, model of Roland uh, monophonic synthesizer, which only has one oscillator, but I think you can bring in. Um, can't remember whether. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's adjustable waveforms, but it's it's bigger. It's got a bigger sound than the 101. So I bought I bought it specifically because I didn't have a true 
monophonic synthesizer that sounded badass. So I was like, I need to get. So like for you, it might be the Pro One, but this is the Roland that I just I had to get hold of. For sure, I mean, I make techno music, so I mean, this is going to be my next question. Like, obviously, um, you, I've seen you play with Eurorack, and yeah. I've noticed that you was actually trying to design your own module as well. Or you make your own yeah. one, is that right? Yeah, yeah. How did you, where did you, oh, oh yeah, 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 okay, okay. I'll do my oh, research. I know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know which one you're talking about. Okay, so basically, when I started with Eurorack, I thought, um, I know absolutely nothing about electronics, really. So I wanted to see if I could figure out how to make a three-voice VCO module based on the Curtis chip, and I failed miserably. <laughs> but I mean, um, it, I think I think there's just a, a small issue with the design that I did um, that somebody would, I reckon, take one look at and solve in an instant. But there's also um, something else I was working with somebody else to um, do a stereo, multi-band stereo EQ, which isn't exactly out on the Eurorack market at the moment, but I think I think that ship has sailed. And I'm using uh, something else, this uh, ER301 as a um, uh, stereo EQ at the moment. Do you have much? Do you have much of a Eurorack uh, setup? Or yeah, it's terrifying, and I get absolutely terrifying because I've I've spent like so much money all this Eurorack stuff. Each module is just silly it's so amount expensive. Of money. It's crazy. The reason for it is is that most of the time they're small companies, you know, and they don't know how many of this unit they're going to make and how profit, profitable it will be. So the cost of these modules is basically because you're not buying it off Behringer or Cork. So when Behringer come out with these modules, of course they're too, way cheaper than everybody else because their mm -hmm. margins are so much. Oh, for it's sure. But anyway, yeah, so I've got... Um, well, I'll show you all this little version I've got. Um, not that the not that your listeners will be able to see this, um, but I, I decided that like I had this a, a massive case behind me, and um, I needed to kind of shrink it a little bit so that I could concentrate on specific modules and learn um, a little bit more about them. So the ER301 is is uh, is just this incredible toolbox of things that you can do. So I, I put that in this small rack to kind of learn how it works. But yeah, I've got a lot of it. Um, and it's absolutely shameful the amount of time I've used it. Sorry. I, yeah, no, it's okay. I don't know what happened there. Well, we, we might be streaming upstairs. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to figure it out, but yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, Brad can edit. Uh, Brad does a little edit after the fact. Then yeah, yeah. just the levels on so that. Can, so you can uh, edit that. We'll see how we go. Yeah. So, so, go so yes, yeah, so I was going to say, seeing as we were talking about uh, you know modules and companies and whatever, and Behringer's come up a couple of times so far. Yeah. What are your thoughts yeah. on Behringer at the moment? Because they are they are pumping out a lot of sort of stuff that's affordable yeah. but does it sound as good to you like what are you what's your actual thoughts on uh, i thought the i thought the model d sounded wicked sounded great um but ergonomically i was talking to somebody in the studio about this recently because i had a lot of um chats with uh, producers and uh, studio techs recently to try and find where else I can go and I was discussing the Behringer Model D and how good it sounds but it's just it's like a it toy. Feels cheap. Yeah it feels cheap they do, the knobs aren't good it's like yeah. everything feels a little bit loosey and goosier but the sounds are pretty good Brad you've got the I've got the uh, TD3 but again as you say you've had many discussions with people in studios we've had many mm. discussions with people because people ask us as well like what's your take on Behringer's yeah. range now with the modules coming out as well yeah. for Eurorack I mean I was looking to buy the Model D I have the DFAM because I'm touching into Eurorack now but yeah. from what I've seen of the Model D and like you just said it 
it does sound it, it isn't bad i mean for the price no, as no, well no, no. it's really good it's really good the model d um is probably you know that blew me away when i first listened to it um <clears throat> it sounds great but i couldn't get on with the so they, in fact it was maybe like the second or third module that i bought because i just wanted uh, something to get me going in the in the euro rack business and um it just didn't click with me because it was too cramped. Everything's just too cramped, and I couldn't. Again, like a big part of a good synthesizer design for me is the ergonomics of it, and I would have liked the Model D to be a bit bigger. And I know they've got the Poly D out now. Um, I don't know. I've, I've not had the opportunity to try that, but I think that might be a little bit more enjoyable to to program. I, I would imagine. <laughs> But um, if you ask me what I think about the um, uh, the process of reissuing instruments and the way Behringer have gone about it, that's that's a whole different story. But the, <laughs> the sound I think they're, that they're coming out with is pretty good. Yeah, yeah so I know. I know a few people are a bit unhappy-ish with Behringer the way they've gone about their process but for I think for some consumers that don't have the budget yeah, you, can, you, can, you can go and get some toys for quite cheap that sound pretty good right? I yeah. hear that but, but you can also come up with your own ideas and make them still sound good 100% that's, yes. that's, where, I, that's where I sit on the fence with it I mean they're, yeah. they're, they are making these reissues affordable and available for people who wouldn't otherwise be able to access them and i totally get that and i have no problem with the people that buy them obviously um but i, I just feel like if you're a company come on like get do, your own. Yes, do your own stuff let's come to you yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 i mean i've got the moog defam and that feel I've, i think moog it feels like the dials feel awesome yeah you can feel yeah, the difference between the and anything Barrage yeah. has ever made obviously yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no even play with the um the, is it the grandmother yes yeah play with that yeah. store that even feels fun yeah, i was awesome. toying yeah. when i when i bought my base station i was actually playing with the grandmother and i was like well okay that's 1200 bucks but it's amazing <laughs> it's amazing yeah, yeah. I, I spent two days i literally stood in this in the in our music store uh, our local music store for probably two hours one day and then about an hour and a half the next day and i just literally stood there just playing with that machine and it's amazing but for yeah. me i'm not a, i'm not a producer i'm not you know i'm just a guy playing around in his kitchen so the base station for like half the price sounded yeah. not the same Right, but I think you made the right choice. And I think that if I'm right, the base station two has chorus available as an effect on it. I could be making that up. No, I think you're right. I think it does. And chorus does incredible things. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's my favorite effect. Synthesizes it. Yeah. What's the other, you've got the grandmother. What's the bigger one than that? It's the matriarch. The matriarch. That's been on my shopping list. But I haven't pulled the trigger on that because I told myself, you know, all the Eurorack stuff I put together because I had a couple of theories about what you could do with Eurorack and they all came true once I managed to buy everything. But I also wanted a four-voice synthesizer, so I built a four-voice synthesizer out of Eurorack that could do all sorts of different things. And so I don't have an excuse to buy a Matriarch as much as I'd like one. So with um, with Eurorack then uh, with the uh, modules that you buy, um, you buy on these certain modules for a certain sound you're trying to get because that's basically what Eurorack is about, yeah. right? So you can do, and this is the thing. Like um, when I first started looking at Eurorack, it really was just sort of you build build a synthesizer out of Eurorack. So you have your oscillators and your filters and your envelopes, and um, the more I think. Even more recently, it's been about um, getting a bit wild and wacky with what you can do with um, Eurorack. But I was a little bit put off with Eurorack to begin with because of the, how I say it, the hipsters that were using it at the time. So Eurorack started a little bit more underground than that and a little bit more professional than that. And then Stanley, especially in the London area, um, there was a bit of a hipster thing to be into Eurorack and it put me off for a little bit because of the 
interactions I had with some people in the shops and this and that, and um, eventually uh, I knew what I wanted to get out of Euro Rack, and um, that was, first of all, as I say, a four-voice synthesizer, and also a real-time audio resampler, <laughs> which, I, which I've managed to make actually work, which is weird. Um, but in answer to your question, what I would say is that Eurorack solves so many, many, many different problems that people may have but don't know how to solve right now. There's a module for everything. It's like what they used to say with the iPhone, there's an app for that. There's a module for that, right? So you could build a whole Eurorack system which is just tools, tools to integrate into whatever gear you already have. And that's 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 what I find really exciting about it is it bridges a gap between the vintage and the modern. You know, you can you can get it all combined and get it all working together in really interesting ways with Eurorack. Yeah. What's the um the go to shop then for synthesizers in London? Because I know you've seen hosted by some gear from West End DJ, sort of uh, Tottenham Court Road and stuff like that. They didn't have much of a selection there. Obviously, mainly DJ stuff. But where would you go for your equipment and to try stuff? Uh, well, um, where I was going for. I mean, a couple of them closed down over the last 10 years, but the place I would go to is Wanjo Keys down on Denmark Street. Um, and there's, unfortunately, their shop keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller, but the people that work there are great. I get on with them really well, and you go down there, and you, you go down there because you hope they might have a synth that you, you, you might want to be buying and you want to try out, but you end up staying there for an hour or so just chatting to them about synths and what's coming out and what's hot and what people like. I mean, that's what shops should be. Mm -hmm. It should be really welcoming and warm and... You know, if you don't, if you walk into a shop and you don't really know what you're doing, you know, you shouldn't expect the person behind the counter to be pretentious about what they're doing and what they're selling. I mean, that's just the worst way to go about it. And Monzo Keys are the complete opposite. They really, like, help you out as much as they possibly can. And they get the gear in as well. You know, they're not afraid to drop 10 grand on a Moog one, <laughs> even though they're this tiny little shop, you know. So... Um, kudos to them and um, those sort of places are dying out but central London you, you've got to find one Joe Keys yeah it's so. just like the records shops isn't it really like you go in there like I used to go to Fonica studio Fonica records and you mm. sit in there and you just chill out and yeah. pick out your vinyl and they're like do you need a hand and it's a, it's a cool vibe you're not in a rush to buy it they're not rushing you out yeah. the door to buy it yeah. you just sit there and chill out and take as much time as you want what I would say in terms of Euro Rack is um, we don't, uh, there are, there is a, there are maybe one or two places to walk in the shop in London and buy Euro Rack, but they're not places that I particularly enjoy going to. And I went over to, um, I've been over to LA the last couple, a couple of times in the last couple of years, and there's this amazing store in Santa Monica called um, Analog Haven. And you just walk in there, and again, those guys, they, they, they don't care about how much you know about Eurorack. They're just, like, totally into the gear, and they want to share that with you. And it's just a really nice experience to just, like, bond with people that you've never met before over, you know, just geeking out over gear. But, you know, you come to London, and the experience is just not like that at all. It's, really, it's a real shame. Our last guest was like that, wasn't he? Uh, Noir at Blanc V. He, he's from LA and he said there's stores there that you can go in and just lose yourself there for a long time. Yeah, Perfect Circuit Audio is another one up in Burbank. Yeah, that's what he mentioned, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah I think he mentioned that one, didn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they've got everything up there and they let you get on with it as well. <laughs> you, just, you just walk in and you're just there for as long as you want and they pretty good deals up there. Yeah. So um, do you have any uh, future projects coming up, Tim? Like, you got anything in the pipeline that you might be working well, on? Uh, this, is, this is the question. If I'm honest, how do I want to keep if doing it? If you want to keep doing it, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, because I would say to anybody that's thinking of doing it, you know, if, if, you, if you're going to get enjoyment out of it and um, 
you're not going to take it too seriously. Sure, give it give it a try. But um, in terms of making money at the moment, it's not particularly viable. So I was, I have been having a lot of meetings with producers and um, and uh, engineers um, to float various ideas about synthesizers and the Eurorack systems that I have going. Um, but COVID really took a you know really blew that. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of things. Yeah. yeah, of course, of course. And and um, but in, in in my case, it was uh, yeah, it was just drumming up meetings and interest, and that was sort of that was picking up pace, and now it's just a little bit off. So if I was gonna do any, I was thinking about the talk wait date. Um, doing a self-release there. I uh, the other thing is that I haven't spoken to manufacturers in a very long time. I haven't reached out to anyone in a very long time. Um, there's a Eurorack company, Tip Top Audio, that I've spoken to a few times over the last uh, couple of years, and I just I haven't been as proactive with our conversations as, as perhaps I should have been. So I might. Um, catch up with those guys, see how they're doing. Um, but um, in terms of the self-release, uh, the Korg wave state interests me enough that I would get something out of the synthesizer, even if it wasn't a profitable thing to do. Yeah. What about tracks? Do you produce any tracks yourself? you ever thought about releasing anything? So... Um, Going back to how I came, I, I found synthesizers in the first place in 2004 when my friends went out to France to record an album. Um, that's exactly what I was doing. I was writing music at home, um, and I was doing. So I started that in 2004, and I was doing that up until like 2015, and then I just ran out of time. And it's not because I mean it's it's. Again, I became a bit of a perfectionist, and I wasn't sure where, uh, what direction my stuff was going in. I, the best stuff that I did, the stuff I was, you know, I had a whole sort of synth soundtrack with drums, and I sang over the top of it, and that stuff I'm really proud of. And then after that, um, I was doing a lot of sort of weird. We, I started. I was getting really interested in vaporwave and vapor funk sort of records, which is sort of a little bit like lo-fi. Okay, I'll get murdered for this as well, but it's sort of like elevator music slowed down a bit. And then, and then, and then, and then you put some. You might put some um, classic vocal sample over the top of it, slow that down as well, and then call that your track. But if you do it right, um, it will sound really good. If you produce it right, it's punchy, and you you might take um, you might take a sample of a bass line, but then redo it with your own bass synthesizer. So it's sort of like re-engineering old tracks and bringing breathing new life to them and adding a new beat to it. And I was really interested in that for a while, and I came up with some stuff that I liked. Um, it is available on SoundCloud <laughs> under the guise we'll of on, under the guise of Tim Please. Tim Please. Um, Tim Please. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. I will. Uh, I'll check it out. <laughs> yeah, we'll check it out for sure. Um, I enjoyed it, but I just again no time right now. No time. Yeah. What's um. If you could uh, sum it all up quite quickly for us, what is how 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 big is your collection of synths and everything now? Um, how many pieces do you have? Right, if we ignore the Euro rack stuff, then I've got this uh, I've got a this Super JX that I bought last week because it was an insane price, and I've had an hour and a half with it, and now it's hiding behind the door. Um, I've got the, the Profit 08. I bought a, Jupiter, a Roland Jupiter 6 um, a month ago. And again, I had like two days with that and bought a flight case and hit it. Um, does need a service though, so that's that's what I keep telling myself. A Novation Summit, which I really do recommend. Um, I've still got a call Prolo, Prologue. 
I've got the System 100M, which is the monophonic synthesizer I mentioned earlier. And unbelievably, how could I forget, I managed to buy a Yamaha DX1 last year, and that I, I'm still pinching myself about that. Um, if you don't want to know what a DX1 is, uh, Google, Google it. I see you got the cartridge pack. The uh, you ordered it from the states. So looking at your Instagram, you got the. Yeah. What was that for? Yeah. So that was for the DX1. So the DX1 um, Yamaha only made 140 DX1s. Uh, at least that's the the myth. I think it's a stupid myth. But anyway, I think I think they made less. Um, there's no. I, I get really annoyed about this whole 140 Yamaha DX1 things because there's no there's there's no literature that says that. It's just this myth that's been handed down over the generations. <laughs> anyway, so the the DX1 is a really really rare instrument, and so parts finding parts for it is just is just as hard. And the DX1 is with the tech now, and the cards that you saw. Um, slot into the top of the instrument and they have presets on them effectively. So a DX1 is basically, to put it in a basic form, is basically two DX7s um, with much better DA converters inside of it, a weighted keyboard, um, an amazing interface that taught me more about FM synthesis than I, I had a DX7 for months and couldn't figure, like many people, couldn't quite get get deep into it. But the DX1 just, you know, half an hour of that solved that. Yeah, I mean, could, could you could you wipe that and then put reload presets back onto that chip or card? Uh, not, on, not on that one. I don't think I've got the, the other version here. But there's 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 RAM and ROM. So the one you saw on my Instagram was uh, ROM, or I can't remember which way. RAM is um, random access memory, and so one of the cards has presets that you can't alter. And then you can insert a card into the DX1 where you can save presets and or performances. So performances like the way the keyboard and instrument behaves to you playing it, but the preset is obviously the sound. See you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Have you, um, I've been to ask this question, have you worked with anyone famous in the music industry from doing this? Have you worked with or helped show or with what you do to anyone famous or in a, in a band or as a producer or anything like that? Uh, well, as I say, with some of the um, some of the meetings I've had recently have been really interesting and they've been um, with some big guys who I'll just I'll leave nameless. But again, they're, they're sort of produce a lot of the time the producers that are unsung and they've worked on these incredible hits that you know and yet you never really heard about them i mean i've on some of the preset stuff that i've worked alongside with other people that were doing presets for the same synthesizer at the time you know i didn't work directly with them but i was working on the same project with them and i was really blessed to be doing that people like jamie liddell and um Richard Devine. So that's always nice to know that you're in the back of the Prophet 12 manual with these great names, you know, and you're slap bang in the middle surrounded by these these much bigger names. But in terms of, um, you know, I've basically been working at home all this time. That's the thing. So the work that I do is just preset stuff that I've been sat at home doing, and that's basically what I was trying to move forward from before um, COVID-19 happened. I was really working hard and moving what I'm doing indoors here out into the real world, into the studio where we can start to create new sounds for new tracks that are happening out there at the moment because there's lots of different genres that play it safe with that classic sound that those songs have. So particularly like grime that's happening in London at the moment and the, the, the hip hop direction that's, that they're trying to go for. Um, it's very samey, nothing wrong with that. It's, it's just what people, you know, if you've got those little hi-hats in the top, 
the um, people that are listening to those tracks can identify with those and say, yeah, that's the kind of music that I'm into. So it's like a formula, you know, but what I would like to do is to be able to bring something new to that where, yeah, okay, you can still use these little elements of that genre, but let's like hit them with this insane bass line they weren't expecting because that'll make people just go mental if you start throwing things in that they weren't expecting but sound really, really hot. Uh, so that's, that's basically where I want to be with it and uh, start collaborating with these artists and uh, i think there's there's definitely a way into it but um it's it's on hold at the moment it's like with um when i when i produce my music um i, I grew up with sort of drum and bass and house music um but a few of my friends are drum and bass producers and the sounds that in drum and bass jump up drum and bass is a lot more grimy and just more of a dirtier sort mm-hmm. of scrochy sound right it's what you get in mm-hmm. house and then yeah. like, well i could use that sound into, into yeah yeah there's a there's this great rap artist uh you could argue he's rap well he's a rapper anyway he's down in france he's called mickey grems and uh, mickey grems is this amazing spray can artist and uh he you know he does wonderful things with uh visual arts side of things but his music is just blew me away like it's just french hip-hop rap to a house track you know what i mean so you're getting all these amazing house synth sounds and beats and stuff like that but it's like maybe a slightly slower bpm and he's rapping over the top of it um and yeah that that blew me away and I really like the stuff that he does and he's he's been churning it out for the last 10 years and then on the other side of it he's sort of started to um, pick up a little bit more of the more generic sort of hip-hop stuff and sounds but whatever I mean it's if it sells it sells yeah for sure well Tim I mean it's been an absolute fucking pleasure having you on mate yeah thanks sure. so much for coming on board and chatting today Tim it's been a pleasure meeting you mate no it's been very interesting obviously for us we learn stuff every time we speak to people and people that listen as well obviously learn things as well which is good yeah that's the plan that's the plan yeah yeah yeah, no and all the the best for the future hopefully you can still get some sound packs out and maybe get working with some artists like you said mate be good that's the plan anything to do with synthesizers you know i'm I'm the guy (laughs) awesome thanks again tim thank you very much